1: Hi everyone, Lit Up is back. Everyone's been very patient waiting for the new episodes and we have so many amazing ones for you. We're now being produced by Podcast One Australia and I'm so happy to be working with them and I can't wait to share the new season. Today to launch, we have Catelyn Moran on the pod. We're talking about her book, How to Be Famous. A little about the book. It's set in the 90s, and if you were obsessed with music, Britpop, when all you wanted was an Oasis CD, then this is the book for you. This novel is the hilarious sequel to her soon-to-be-adapted How to Build a Girl. It will transport you to grungy and gritty London. Our main character is the Wolverhampton native Joanna Morrigan. If you loved her in How to Build a Girl, you'll love her even more in this book, but you don't have to have read Catelyn's first book to enjoy this. Joanna is a fearless music journalist, and she's unapologetic um, in her writing and, as it turns out, in her sex life. Um, One of the special things about this episode is the fact that I got to go to London and I got to go to Catelyn's house. Um, I turned up and we kind of went through her gorgeous home and then we made tea in her kitchen and we went outside, sat in her garden while she smoked a few cigarettes, we drank our tea and we talked about the book. It was quite funny though because I actually forgot to press record. Luckily we caught it soon but she was so kind um, because she had had an experience where she had... Interviewed Radiohead for, for an hour or so and she had not recorded the entire thing. So I think all of us know the thought of losing a recording is just, you know, it will make all the blood drain from you. And that was kind of the beginning of our gorgeous chat. Um, she's truly even more incredible in person and it was kind of a total pleasure to be opposite from her. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'd love to say um, a big thank you to our new producers, Podcast One Australia. All of these shows are in collaboration with them and it's really exciting to work with them. Um, Please let us know if you like the show or not. Give me some feedback, kind feedback, please. And if there are any authors you'd love to see in the show, please message us at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. I now have to tell you again, but it's just as poignant because I read your book this morning and cried and wept for the women who are going to be so happy and thankful for this book.
0: It's so lovely to hear. We, we are sitting at the table now where I write everything and whenever you're writing a book, there, there's, a, there's a meme that goes around on the internet about the stages of a creative process, which at the beginning stage one is, this idea is great and I'm great, it's going to be amazing. Stage two when you get into it is, this idea is great but I'm not sure if I'm great, maybe this won't be so amazing. Stage three is, this idea is shit and I am shit and this is going to be terrible and then you keep working on it and you go, oh maybe I'm shit but this idea is still good, it'll be okay and then you get to the end of it and go, maybe it will all be alright after all. So the, I, I sat on this chair many times having moments of despair about this book but the one thing I wanted to do was to write a useful book I try to make all my books useful So, uh, and if I've made you cry and laugh on top of that then that is an absolute bonus (laughs) Well and I
1: said I'm 37 and to get this book now feels important for me but it's about this beautiful 18 year old and we've met her before in How to Be a Girl Can you tell us a bit about Joanna and maybe you know A little bit about who she was then, but where we land when we first open this book?
0: So we first met Johanna Morrigan uh, in the book How to Build a Girl a couple of years ago when she was 13 and in that book she is, it's the process of, of how she builds a girl, she lives, she's uh, very poor, she's working class, her family are, you know, lovely but crazy and she has ambition, she wants to leave this small town she wants to do something, she wants to meet great people she wants to do something great herself so she becomes a writer um, and, and has various adventures and where we left the last book she was just moving down to the London at the beginning of Britpop in 1994 to see if she could make her career on her own. And so at the beginning of this book, How to Be Famous, uh, we join her six months later uh, at the point where Britpop is exploding all across London and everyone around her is becoming famous. So How to Be Famous isn't like a manual to become famous. It's what happens if you're a teenage girl and you're surrounded by people who are famous and you realise the mechanisms of fame and the, the perils of fame like fame is an incredible thing because there are three ways that you can get power in the world, you can get power politically uh, and through, through government and through legislation, you can get power through capital and wealth, you can form businesses, you can work on the stock exchange, you can be a property developer and the third way is fame uh, fame is an incredible power structure it's the quickest one, you can become famous very quickly and often it's the only route available to fame, f- uh, to power for working class people, so you don't need capital you don't need connections, if you do something that touches other people, you will suddenly be known by millions of people and that gives you a mandate, a power, a platform and often wealth that allows you to go out there and affect popular culture. There was a quote from uh, the, the terrible uh, right-wing website uh, Brit Bart where they were talking about how politics is often downwind, downstream of culture. And that's absolutely true. If you can affect a culture, you, politics follows on after that. So there is an incredible power that comes with being famous, which has always intrigued and obsessed me since I became a journalist when I was 16 and spent my time around famous people and was observing them going, well, what are you doing with this power? Like, how, how did you get this power? What are you doing with it? Who are you affecting? What do you want to use this power for? How are you coping with it? And that's what had To Be Famous is about she's a teenage journalist like me watching these people seeing people getting this sudden power and seeing how some of them deal with it well some of them deal with it badly and then she herself kind of becomes famous because she has sex with a famous comedian and he tapes it and there's a sex tape and she experiences as so many women do sexual shame this is kind of like the she's the object of gossip she becomes famous in a bad way and i wanted to write about You know, this is set in the 1990s, but now sort of like, you know, slut-shaming and revenge porn is so huge. So I wanted to tell a story about how do you deal as a girl when someone more powerful than you tries to sexually shame you when they have a purchase and a power over you and I'd always known how she was going to deal with it and that's the big crescendo, the ending of the book and while I was writing the book all the Harvey Weinstein stuff started happening and it was like, oh my god, this is happening in real life women out there are dealing with their sexual shame uh, and this is really mirroring the the plot of the book so it was very easy to, to write the last half of that book cause it was like, you know, it was like a wave that was breaking it's like, this is happening to girls all over the world and it's happening to this girl in this book this is amazing
1: Do you remember when you first came to London, that first time around that age?
0: Yes, I'd only been down to London once before. I came down when I was 13 and I won a competition, a writing competition, and they gave us tickets to come down to London. I came down with my father and we walked all around London and uh, and then we went to the party. It was a, 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 a publishing party where there was wine and I'd never drunk wine before. And that was the first time I realised how very ill-equipped my metabolism is to deal with wine. And I, I observed that I'd inherited it from my father because he was very ill-equipped to deal with the wine as well and we both took it in turns to vomit out of the train window on the way back to Wolverhampton on the way back. And that was a big bonding moment for us.
1: <laughs> That's incredible.
0: We didn't have the enzymes, man.
1: (laughs) So I was thinking about the period when you wrote How to Be a Girl before this wave of kind of the Me Too explosion. If you were going to build a girl now... Would you have written the book any differently? Would you have written How to Be Famous any differently had you started it now?
0: No, the plot was always going to be. this. I'd always known the plot because um, the, the this was it was conceived as a trilogy. Uh, I just enjoy saying the sentence conceived as a trilogy. <laughs> so when after I'd written uh, How to Be a Woman, which was nonfiction, uh, I then knew that the next three things that I wanted to write were fiction because I wanted to tell the story of a working class girl, teenage girl, and I wanted us to follow her over three books, and f- so that you could see someone who. Could came from nothing in the first book building themselves deciding what their moral parameters are what their ambitions are how they're going to deal with the world how they're going to interact with people then the second book how to be famous she was going to come down to london and live independently and deal with sexual shame uh, and and learn how to speak up for herself finally which is what happens in this book and then the third book in this trilogy will be called how to change the world and we will we'll meet johanna and the characters from these books uh in the present day where they will have formed a new political party um because what i wanted readers and girls particularly to do is to follow a girl from nothing to the point where she can change the world so i think that's an incredibly important story to tell you're very much led to believe particularly in this country that there is a ruling class there are political people if you you can you would only become into a position of power if you went to the right school you were born into the right kind of family you had the right kind of education and the the political history that i come from and that i was brought up with by my parents who were sort of working class socialists was that that was not the way that used to be in this country the labor movement in this country and the post-war government with clement Attlee, the formation of the nhs and the Welfare state was working class people getting together to solve problems for working class people, and we've lost that tradition in this country now, and we've gone back to a kind of ruling class of like Oxford, Cambridge, uh, uh, public school boys, and so I wanted to write a trilogy that that gave people in a fictionalised form a route map to how we could do that again to inspire a generation of people to go oh I could do that, I could, you know and I I can't imagine there's many people who are watching the news at the moment both, you know, in America you know, Australia, across the world thinking I could do better than the people who are in charge right now, like kind of these governments do not speak for me, this is a much older, much whiter, uh, much more right wing uh, much less progressive uh, class of people that we have ruling us and their time is coming to an end like all the solutions that they've ever put on the table were seen the same ones time and time again and they're becoming less and less effective and more and more divisive and it feels like we need a new political class and generation to come through and so the bit that I wanted to do to help was to, to write a book that showed you how to do that was doing lots of laughs and doing lots of sexy scenes as well you know it's it's just you know the revolution should always be sexy and funny as well as you know as well as amazing
1: (laughs) well there was this i mean i thought it was a funny interview because you were brilliant i think it was when how to be a girl came out it might have been on the bbc and the woman was very kind of uptight and of course her first question was oh the opening scene is masturbation you had this incredible retort saying, yeah, and we're in the studio and we just, you know, on the ad before our session, there was just war on television. There is violent crime and, you know, killing and the thing that you find most sensational about my book is a gorgeous young girl masturbating
0: yeah well this is there's a brilliant quote from yoko ono that i read when i was like maybe 13 or 14 she was being interviewed in smash hits good old yoko ono and she was going well let's look at the news like let's look at the news that we watch every day that's the most grown-up and important program that we have in our cultures and she was going like for instance why why do we have news followed by sport like why is 10 Minutes dedicated to sport? Because it just mirrors what you've just seen. The war, the the, the the stories that we see on the news are usually about who's winning and who's losing. Kind of like, what are the wars that are happening? What are the political deals that are being done out there? You know, sort of, you know, even stuff like, what are the school grades this year? Like, are we winning or losing? And then you go to sport, which is about people winning or losing. And she's like, why don't instead of having sport, why don't we have music from uh, uh, news from arts and culture instead? The music industry in Britain, at least, is the third biggest industry that we have. It's bigger than sport. Why are we not reporting on amazing songs that people have written? you labels that have been formed. Someone's written an incredible poem, like kind of like, you know, a new kind of shoe has been invented that's really comfortable. These are things that affect our day more than sport. Why are we repeating? Why is why is our idea of what is the primary thing that's important? what we pick on the news what is the news and it also sets up this template like i mean it's very diff- it's very easy to get attention if you do something bad like if i get a car now and i go and drive it into a mosque as happened a couple of miles down the road um, from where we're sitting now in london uh, last year at finsbury park mosque i'll be on the news all over the world like i will be a terrorist and i will get attention for my for my you know for my bad deed and i will publicize the idea of being a terrorist and doing these things if i if i'm a doctor and i save 20 or 30 lives tonight it will never be on the news we don't reward good behaviour. We don't show good behaviour. It's very difficult to spread good news. There's no website where you can see the progress that we're getting all the time. I love Stephen Pinker's books where he's talking about how we are actually living through an incredible times now. We're eradicating diseases across the world. We have equal marriage in more countries than we've ever had. You know, th- th- even though s- things are still very imbalanced for women, we still have more uh, female uh, politicians in power than we've Ireland. ever had. Yeah, Ireland only passed the repeal of the eighth referendum, which is something we would have been working on for 35 years. Like, we have all this good news, but there isn't a single website that you can go to that would make you feel that you do live in these incredible times and you can see the consequences of this now. You look at the younger generations like all across the world now in the Western world, the cases of like mental illness, anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders. Our younger people are in despair because what we see is the news and the news is all bad. Only bad people get attention. We don't see good stories about how we can progress. So one of the things that I try and do constantly in the columns that I write in The Times, in the books that I write is going you know here is good news here is progress here are stories that will save us rather than constantly being given stories of things that that are you know destructive and that are bad news because it's not good for our souls we need to believe in a future uh you know i'm very interested in who's got control of the stories and who is telling us what our future is going to be and at the moment we keep being told that it's a terrible future and i truly don't believe that
1: I mean, you've talked a lot, we talked earlier about this hopefulness that is in your books and I'm just kind of linking it to the news and how disastrous everything always feels and yet you know, so often it's the men in power who want to keep us scared, yeah. I feel.
0: Well, scared and anxious people. I mean, if you look at I mean, I think we, we really have been rewired, uh, you know, particularly the last decade. You know, we, we are we are chemically anxious now. Yeah, we, we drink coffee, we smoke cigarettes, you know, we do we do sort of you know, we, we, we fight, we box even in our leisure time. You know, we watch the movies that we watch. I went and watched Avengers Infinity War yesterday with a friend where uh, she's a mum. We were both so angry at how long it was. And also so angry that, you know, we've seen the the biggest movie franchises in the world are always the same thing it's it's almost always men a couple of token women almost always white a couple of token people of color and every single one of those films has the same uh, has the same plot which is some men who generally don't agree with each other who are all bancy with each other have to club together against their will and just smash the shit out of a couple of major cities but then the next one is again about everybody having to get together and smash the shit out of a couple of major cities. It's this repetitive story that the only future there is is in fighting constant wars. And like, it, you know, the, 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 if you go back and look at the movie industry like kind of 50 years ago, we weren't telling... these weren't There's like a monoculture now of yeah. what stories are, what our idea is of how we we solve things. I think it's very interesting as well. If you look at a list of the 100 greatest movies ever made, they will always, almost always be written and directed by men, starring men, and it'll be things like The Godfather and Serpico. If... Um, and they're always about war and conflict and people being murdered and kind of betrayal and then, you know, the, the sort of the maverick strongest guy wins. If you could look at a list of the 100 greatest musicals ever made, they're often written by women. They Women are almost always the stars of them and they're about, you know, weird, unusual girls who, because of a talent they have to dance or to sing, triumph and find happiness and make other people happy. And there's such a disparity between the stories that men want to tell and the stories that women want to tell. And I think the stories that women want to tell are better... I, th- I think we've seen all the male stories. Like, I'm kind of, you know, my God, my kids go on at me being sexist all the time. But, like, if we put something on and it's about some men, I'm like, I don't really care. <laughs> I've kind of heard everything they've got to say. Well, God bless them. I don't want any yeah. of it to disappear. But I, I need to see more women. I need to see more people of colour. I just need to see something different. My eyes are bored.
1: Well, I also think it's a period, I mean, just going back to the shaming and women being shamed for sex and this wave of women Taking back their power. I also think we similarly need to see men being shamed for their bad behaviour, which I think is finally happening. Yes, but also in the movies, in the culture, none of the men who commit violence, none of them are shamed for no. it.
0: And I think this. I think this is sadly. Uh, I, I think. This is sadly a failing in men, and I think part of it is a problem with women in the feminist movement. I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. So that the, the uh, Glamour magazine uh, got together with GQ magazine, and they published a report uh, where they were asking them about the. They were asked a um, thousand male readers about the Me Too movement. Thirty-seven percent had never heard. No, forty-seven percent had never heard of it, and thirty-seven f- percent had never talked about it to a male friend. So this was incredible to me. And I, I, if you look at like what's happened to women in the last hundred years, like the women's movement of feminism... We have expanded the idea of what it is to be a woman a billion fold. You know, we have female pilots, we have female doctors, we have female politicians, we have female artists. The idea of what it is to be a woman has become huge and elastic. We can wear different things, we can do different things, we can talk in different ways, we can look different ways. We You know, generally we've managed to, uh, you know, bring on board our trans sisters, you know, with kind of like very little, uh, with very little uh, uh, problem there. There's been some friction, but you know, we've, we've encompassed all these different ways that you can be a woman. And in that same time, the idea of what it is to be a man seems to have become even less it, even yeah. more restrictive, and this is why I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for kind of men's rights activists and sort of the incels that we were that have been in the news recently. Kind of the involuntary celibate men who are starting to radicalise now, and sort of they, they, um, there was a shooting spree in Canada last month. Young men are going, women are winning. Like, kind of, there's no future for us, and in a way they are true that 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 is correct because we have not expanded the ideas of what it is to be men. Men have stayed absolutely static while all these incredible things happen to women. The problem is that it, it's sort of presumed that it's women that are stopping them from expanding yeah. their ideas of what they can be and it's not it's like guys this is a guy problem like kind of if there are troubled young men you need other men to be stepping up and g- having basically an equivalent of feminism going here's a million more things that men can be let's expand your range and one of the biggest problems for men at the moment you know with the biggest cause of suicide for people under the men under the age of 50 in in britain is suicide mental health is a massive problem for men they kill themselves because they cannot talk about their feelings you know that's a huge problem and that that's a problem of equality and feminism that's a gender problem. That's exactly what feminists are talking about when they talk about problems with gender. Women, we are one in four of us will be raped or sexually assaulted. We get paid less. We don't get childcare. Men can't talk about their feelings. Mm-hmm. Like it, Suicide is, is wiping them out in vast numbers and they tend not to get custody of their children in divorce battles. So there's work to be done on both sides and I find it really, really odd that kind of good, kind, clever, forward-thinking men have not come up with an equivalent to feminism to help the younger men and go, here, let's expand your options. Let's talk about your problems problems. Let men now do what women have done. Let's start breaking down gender boundaries. Let's release ourselves. Let's come up with all these different ideas for how it is to be a man. That seems like a massive creative cultural job that writers, directors, pop stars, broadcasters, thinkers, yeah. philosophers should be tackling and we're not. We're just allowing these men to become angry and radicalised and, 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 and ignoring the problem which, which should be a joyful thing to do. I would be thrilled if we started making films that were about men that weren't just various Hemsworth brothers getting ripped to the tits with a load of guns and then going out and shooting a load of aliens, like, kind of, I'm ready for that. And I'm sure young men must be. Yeah, you know, and similarly with pornography, like, that's where most young men get their sexual education.
1: I feel so sorry for them if that's it, because then they're not connecting with women or having beautiful intimate experiences either they're just looking at themselves in the mirror while they try to fuck someone
0: this is totally like Jerry in the book which is the most
1: can you just tell are we allowed to give away or you did a bit
0: yeah well so so the person that um, Johanna so Johanna um uh, it's the 90s at the point where comedy was the new rock and roll in the UK. So there was a, a new breed of young male comedians who came along who were treated like rock stars and ended up sort of playing Wembley Stadium and they were kind of, you know, it was this huge new thing. And so Johanna meets one of these guys and gets on with him, this young comedian called Jerry, and ends up having sex with him. And it's awful, horrible sex. Um, he, They, they start, she, she's a very polite and hospitable young lady so she starts giving him a blowjob at which point he taps her on the back and reaches around for the tv remote control so she presumes that they're going to watch pornography and she's like oh, okay i'm gonna make a night of it and then she hears the theme tune to his tv show blaring out over the tv and she realizes he's going to watch himself on television while she sucks him off at which point she decides to leave uh, but then unfortunately she has to wait a very long time for a cab and he starts reading her his poetry and this is based on a true experience i had <laughs> Oh, my God. I feel like every single woman can relate to that. Well, the bit in the book just before that, when she goes back to his house and she's describing what his house looks like.
1: That's my favourite one. of my I want to do that with all my girlfriends.
0: Oh, that that was a conversation I had with my girlfriends. My best friends Sally and Lauren came round and we were talking about all the things when you're a young woman that should be a massive red Red warning light. If you go back to a man's house and you find these things, you're in the house of a bad man and you must leave. And they are as follows. A poster of Betty Blue on the wall, uh, some jazz records that he's clearly not listened to, but feels that he should have there. Um, any Irish uh, instrument, like such as a bodhran or something, that he <laughs> kind of thinks that he can play, but he can't. Uh, scratchy coke marks on the table where he's racked out lines of coke, and it's it's damaged the uh, it's damaged the table. A cat that looks very clearly neglected. A uh, velvet frock coat, because that tells you that you're in the in the uh, house of a man who thinks he's a poet, and he's probably a damaged man boy who is going to now go on and damage you. So it's this list of oh god, and the books would be things like like uh, 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 Henry Miller, Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, oh, uh, James yeah. Bond books, uh, Philip Roth, sadly, uh, Update, Hemingway, Jack Kerouac. I uh, you know. added
1: some of my own, which would oh, be The, on, the Fountainhead. Yes, Anne Rind, yeah. And um, <gasps> next to it, American Psycho. <gasps> oh, my God, yes. If I ever see that yes. in someone's house, I'm just thinking misogynist, here I come. Absolutely. If you see any of
0: those books on the shelf, your (laughs) vagina needs to shut up like a clam, become as dusty as a desert, and you need to remove it from that building as quickly as possible, because no good will come to it. Like, I no one who has those books in their house is going to be a gentle, considerate and amusing lover.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That bit was so powerful. And just before it, there's this great moment when they've had a drink and they're chatting and he kind of says, oh, I have it written down here somewhere. Oh, what does he say? He's talking. He's like, oh yeah, that's the Bible of how love and sex are dirty and dangerous if you're doing them right. And I, rem- it reminded me how bad men often t- try to tell you they're bad. Men. Yes, absolutely. And it's definitely happened to me before when I'm younger and I'm, and instead of, seeing it and taking it on board because you say in the book so beautifully oh like here we go I agree to the terms the terms and conditions box of the man who is telling you know he's telling you up front yes this is the contract if I'm making this joke I am dirty I want to do dirty things to you but I'm not gonna respect you
0: totally no they tell you in advance and this is the thing that, especially when you're a young girl particularly if you've just moved to a big city like kind of the real these I've written about them before and 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 this is one of the main themes of the book that are in true life such a thing as vampires they move to big cities they're usually kind of wounded man boys they will present themselves as being sort of romantic and broken and they will tell you up front I believe that you know sex is all about you know and love is all about screaming and betrayal and darkness and all all this kind of awful stuff. They'll talk about it in these terms. They'll talk about women who've broken their hearts and kind of that. You know how they see women as dangerous. And you, if you're a young girl, kind of go, okay, well, I can handle that. I'm going to prove myself. That's you know, I'm going to be a grown ass woman now, and I'm going to I'm going to be with a dangerous man or a broken man, and I'll heal him, and I'll also show him that I'm dirtier and sexier than him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is a complete waste of your time. No no happy, loving marriage and children and a lovely dog and a lovely house have ever come of a young teenage girl getting together with a broken man boy who's told you up front that he's into dirty, dangerous sex and into fucking you up and breaking your heart. Like, Just walk away right now. And you, you have to either learn that that really painfully in your own life by stepping through it. Or hopefully you read a book where an old tribal elder hag such as myself just puts it in writing and goes, here's what they look like. Here's what they say. Because those vampire men, they... It's, it's like the chemical they get off on is distress and hurt and heartbreak in a girl. They want to see you anxious. They want to see you crying. They want to see you confused. And they huff that emotion out of you like cocaine and it makes them high. That's their whole thing. They hover around at parties and they see bright, brilliant young girls and they take them home and they suck all the life out of them mm. like vampires. And I really think that's one of the reasons that vampires have remained this kind of constant in films and in literature over the last hundred years. Because there are men like that. And instead it's not blood, it's li- life that they suck out of girls and you just as soon as you meet these vampire men you just need to stick a stake in their heart and run away and so in the book because we identify Jerry as one of these vampire men and once Johanna's had her terrible sexual experience with him she becomes friends with this brilliant insane feminist called Suzanne Banks who's in a band called the Branks and uh, Suzanne is, is older than her she's lied about her age she she's, she's tells everyone she's 25 she's 32 um, and she's seen it all before so next time she sees this terrible comedian out in public chatting up another teenager girl she's like right we're going to stop this we're going to go over we're We're going to be feminist avengers and stop this. And this was another thing I found to be true brilliantly when I moved down to London, that like even before the internet, there was like a woman's internet and women at parties would see these bad men going over to young girls and they would go over and warn them. They'd wait till they were in the toilets and just be like, no, I'm telling you now, he's a bad man. Like you must get away from him. And I love that in women. We will share the information. We will kind of tell the other girls. We'll be like, nah, step away from him. He's not for you.
1: Well, and I don't want to give away too much, but there's something so... I identified really in the book so much. You know, when something bad happens to you, or you go through an experience where you you feel shame and you don't really know what the feelings are, but actually, instead of getting angry, you get sad and confused and yes. disappointed. Yeah, and really, kind of the implosion. It's almost like that's depression, right? When you yeah. have no idea what the fuck, like what is going on. But there is a moment where that feeling is actually tr- transformed. Into anger. Yes. And there, I just love Suzanne for recognizing that in this moment. And something, I mean, we both have blue eyes, whatever color your eyes are out there, you know, when Suzanne says to Joe, stay angry because it makes your eyes even bluer then. I just thought that should be on t-shirts or it should be you know, if you have brown eyes they, it makes them even more yeah, beautiful It makes your then. eyes
0: pop. Anger makes your eyes pop. Yes. Girls, you look, you know, the anger goes with everything. It makes every outfit look amazing because as women we are taught never to be angry and there's a reason for that you know, all the way through history, generally it's been dangerous for women to be angry because if you get angry and you try and rebel, you know, against the patriarchy in a world where we didn't have a vote where we could literally be owned by men when we got married to them when you were passed from your father to your husband in a marriage and you became property of one and then the other and you know there was no legal system and there was no feminism and there were no marches and there was no way you could share your story and there was no internet. To become angry was basically like a suicide note because you're going to get angry, you're going to rebel and they will crush you, you've got nowhere to go. So it's only now that it's becoming safer, it's still not totally safe but we have more resources now so that if we have had something wrong happen to us and we have anger we can use that anger as an energy to go to places, to change things, we can you know, we can get these people arrested, we can go and make statements, we can go and complain to our boss when we are wronged. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, we're only just starting to learn that now. You know, we don't have many angry female role models, or if we see women who are angry in culture, you know, we, we are taught to, to not like them. You know, we sort of like, you know, the, the whole trope of the angry black woman that, that women of colour have had to argue against so long, we see them as unsympathetic. But for women to finally get angry and realise that they can use that anger as an energy to effect change, we are now in a culture where we can do that, where that is Useful. That's what the Me Too movement is. Women are finally allowed to get angry and we can do something about it. There is a framework there to protect us. So yeah, in the, in the book where she's sort of, Johanna's just had all these, she's been repressing her anger and it's made her depressed, it's made her confused, it's made her self-hating. And the day where she finally realises she is angry that she's been taken advantage of by this man that he's lying about her. And her, her brilliant feminist friend is like, yes, baby got her angry wings. Today's the day you came of age. You are angry now. Keep hold of that.
1: Well, I mean, there are many ways, reasons why women get angry now. And you mentioned revenge porn and these, I mean, and in your book, you decided to have it be a sex tape. Yes. Why did you make that choice? It really made me think back to like the Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian Kind of phenomenon. That's
0: where it started in the nineties. That was why I did it because this is set in ninety five, and that was the the first of those sex tapes started coming out around then. The first one was Roblo um, did one with a, a, a woman around that time. Uh, there were two reasons. One, I had always thought I'd just got these two ideas for the book, and one of them was what do you what do you do if you are experiencing sexual shame? You have been sexually shamed by by a culture, by by a, by a group of people. How do you get? over that. The the information's out there. People are watching you fucking. That tape is out there. Those pictures are out there. If it's revenge porn now on the internet, what do you do? You can't get rid of it. It's out there forever. Or it's virtually impossible to get rid of it. So what do you do? So it's, you remove its worth because at the moment, half the reason why people, half the reason why it's so shaming is because there's a worth attached to it, there's a power attached to it. You are being shamed because you're not supposed to see a woman's genitals. You're not supposed to watch them fuck. And that's where the shame comes from. So the idea was always, if she stands there and removes its worth by going, I'm going to show it you, she ends up in the book going on stage and showing the tape in front of 2000 people. And so she shows them it. She goes, I'm going to take away all his power and it's not a secret anymore. I'm going to broadcast this now and I'm going to narrate it. Because you, mm. what you see when you watch that film is you just see me being fucked and taking advantage of I'm going to tell you what I was thinking now I'm going to tell you what this was like I'm going to describe this to you so you now finally hear my voice so I'm now not just a piece of meat being thrown around on a screen you're now going to know what I'm thinking and feeling so you now know emotionally what this tape is and I just think that probably is the only way around it like at a point where the I can't see any way around it or the easiest way around the shame of being a woman being seen naked and being fucked It seems the only way that we can get rid of that shame and that stigma is to blast through it and stop making women's bodies be private and shameful. We need to be showing bodies doing all these kind of things so it's so normal that there's no value attached to these things anymore. Mm. If there's a sex tape out there, it's like, I don't care. I see women's bodies all the time. It's like, it's not a special secret dirty thing anymore. You know, we need to normalize fucking actual sex. We need to normalize women's bodies so that there isn't this value attached to it now. It stops being a secret. So that's the, that's the choice that Johanna makes. She's going to stop it being a secret and she's going to let you know how how she felt how awful it was what she was thinking all the way through this and she's thinking funny things sometimes during the sex she's saying these funny things that she's thinking she's describing how some of it is painful she's describing how she didn't want to do this thing what she was thinking of him all the way through it and takes his power away it stops being his story at that point and mm-hmm. it becomes hers again because you can hear her voice and also i
1: think so many women will identify the the things you might say during bad sex. Yes. Like you're playing the role now just to have it be over sooner.
0: Totally. So there's a bit where she's narrating it where you can hear and like sort of this is one of the things that people have quoted the most So this sex tape's been watched by everybody and everybody's gossiping about it and one of the big jokes is that at one point she's going kind of like do it to me do it to me harder and they're all laughing over this kind of going look at this girl just saying this thing do it to me harder and copying her accent and so when she's narrating the tape she goes okay well the reason I said this isn't because I'm enjoying this sex or because I want him to fuck me harder it's because I think if I encourage him to fuck me harder he'll come sooner and it'll all be over. You know this is why women say these things during sex. This isn't what we're thinking. This is a tactic. You know we're surviving this experience right now. You know what I'm saying isn't an indication that I'm enjoying this. It's an indication that I want it to stop. I, you know, I've often thought, you know, I'd wanted for so long to, to narrate what women are thinking during a, a, a terrible fuck. Because when you watch pornography, you know, modern pornography, it just breaks my heart that this is the way that teenage boys and girls are learning about sex now. It's all for, for, for both parties. First of all, there is no female orgasm in these things. All, you're not seeing female pleasure at all because the, the sex is so violent and, and uh, you know, un, un, unamusing and unpleasurable. So what you see is women in pain. And this is what boys are seeing. Like, kind of, you're not seeing a happy orgasmic face. You're seeing women kind of like, being stretched and being torn and being hurt. You know, and that's what's replacing female, uh, what's replacing female pleasure. Now, you know, for ages I had this idea of getting the porn actresses in for some of the highest rating porn films in the world, and getting them to actually talk through what was happening there. Just explain to me what you've been doing that day. You know, they'd be going, "Well, I dropped off the kids like half an hour before this with the babysitter, then I came here, then I, you know, had to shave on my genitalia, then I had to do some preparation, stretching preparation because it was a double penetration." Just talking about it like the business that it is. And then when you're watching them fucking and kind of going at it really hard, her going, "Yeah." At this point, I was thinking about what I was going to have for tea. I don't remember. I should have taken that bag of mints out the freezer and I needed to defrost it. All, all that bit pinched a bit there. Oh, I might get some later. I'm going to have to go and make sure I've got some antibiotics in my cabinet and just show the reality of that pornography. Like, l- let me hear that woman's voice. L- let her explain what her day at work has been so that we realise this is a day of work. This isn't sex. This is someone's job. You know, this is not the kind of sex you should be having. You're watching someone at work here. You're not watching a woman actually having sex. That is not sex in porn. And I can't believe that we are fucking up having sex. Like this is, you know, cats have sex on roofs in the rain. Like kind of, they they are managing it. How are we as humans I that can know. communicate and talk to each other? How are we getting to the point where there are generations of children now, you know, and teenagers and young adults who don't actually know how to have sex and make it fun? There's such fun sex in the book. There's actually the most beautiful sex. Thank you.
1: And... I just imagined being, you know, 14 and getting this book and being so excited to have that kind of sex. Well, that
0: was the other thing. I wanted to write about female sexual shame and, and you know, the progress of this girl and stuff. But the other thing that I knew that I wanted to do was write... I wanted to write about all the different kinds of sex. So we read about her abusive sex and how she gets over that and sexual shame. And then I also wanted to write about beautiful, brilliant sex. You know, I just wanted to write about magical dream sex and also... Uh, uh, well, first of all, the magical dream sex. I thought that was very important because the way that I learned about sex, I was from a pre-internet era. So it was mainly from reading books, dirty books, and books written by women. So Nancy Friday's My Secret Garden, which is an incredible book of women's masturbatory and sexual fantasies, which blew my mind. And then Jilly Cooper, who I don't think is so big over there, but is huge here, writes these kind of bonk busters. And it's all just jolly, lovely, funny, dirty sex. And I was like and like when Fifty Shades of Grey got really big I was like but this is horrible sex this is like this This girl is like sexually inexperienced much younger than him and he's basically saying I'm going to beat you on the clitoris with a hairbrush in exchange for getting you an iPad and a go in my helicopter it's like yeah <laughs> this isn't sex so I wanted to write about brilliant sex so that the end of the book is like a proper happy finish it's just about a, a great fuck and I wanted you know I was really hoping that teenage girls would read this and this was because the sex you read about and watch when you're younger imprints on you for the rest of your mm. life you know kind of the, you know the stuff that you see becomes your you know your 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 primary sexual stimulus so i wanted to try and get into the heads of as many teenage girls as possible and write about a brilliant fuck with someone that you adore and that you've you've wanted for so long and that's communicative and brilliant and then there's an earlier sex scene where uh, Johanna takes the virginity of a friend of hers a lovely friend he's very nervous and I, I realised I'd never written about a woman taking a man's virginity so and we so dangerous. fetishize the taking of a woman's virginity yeah. I read about that endlessly in books but from a woman's point of view that's statistically likely to be one of the worst fucks of your life you know you're so scared it's likely to be painful there's blood you'll be terrified that you're going to get pregnant even though you've made him and four condoms not come inside you and then go and wank off behind a bathroom door in a sleeping bag. You are absolutely terrified of the sperm. And I was like, well, why haven't I read about a woman taking a man's virginity? Like, kind of, you know, that's a fun Because they're half of us. It happens to them, too. Exactly. And, like, to write about it, like, kind of what his experience would be like and kind of, like, you know, what kind of, like, persona do you want to take on when you're doing this amazing thing for the first time to a boy and you're introducing him to the world of sex and to make it, like, sort of lovely and, and gentle and kind and thoughtful. And, and she like,
1: almost thinks it's so important that she wants to almost give him the experience that she wishes she'd had. Imagine having someone that cares about you so much and wants
0: that's a very clever analysis of it. Imagine yes. A man
1: being like I this is what we're doing and now we're going to do this. How does yes.
0: that feel which is what she does. Totally. And it's I remember reading somewhere which I think is so true that generally people tend to do in sex to their partner what they wish they would have done to them. And but I don't think many people know that. The amount of women that I know who like, sort of say, you know, when you know when I when I'm fucking my partner I'm kind of like, you know, stroking his arms or like touching his face and stuff because I'm hoping he'll do that to me. Oh yeah. But he, he just thinks that I'm, I don't know, filling with his nipples or just touching his bum for no reason. And like, kind of, you actually need to state that. Like, kind of like, you know, what I am doing is what I would like done to me. I just wanted to write honestly about what women want from sex and like, and it not be, you know, when you see the success of something like Fifty Shades of Grey, it made me weep that that was for so many women, their idea of a sexy book. That's an abusive book. It's a horrible book. That trilogy is horrible. Um, You know, I wanted to write about real human sex that didn't involve millionaires and beating, like kind of, that's a whole lot of admin you know, I mean I understand, you know, people who are really into S&M, there's a whole load of psychological reasons why that's that's fulfilling for you and that's fantastic. I absolutely support the the BDSM community 100%, but Anastasia in the in the 50 shades of gray books has none of the prerequisites that means that you're into BDSM. She's literally talked into it. She doesn't get any relief out of it. She's literally going along with what he wants. Um and that's just abuse. That's not, you know, and you know, tell everybody who's listening now the chances of you ever finding a kinky billionaire and finding happiness and love with him, they're zero absolutely not going to happen go and find a lovely plump boy in a cardigan that you can sit down and eat a baked potato with and watch crowded house and bang his brains out in the most loving and creative way possible that's a far better future for you
1: (laughs) well just touching on that it's going to another theme that's in the book but we won't kind of examine it through the characters so much Mm -hmm. to give things away but this rescuing idea that is so in our culture and we're trying to Kind of beat it out of us, like the Disney princess being rescued by the man. And Johanna in the book kind of really incredibly becomes conscious of even though she's had a beautiful... She's having a beautiful experience with someone who really values her.
0: Yeah, who's taken away from all the problems at the yeah. height of her problems. She's sort of taken away and is given the option of being able to run away from her problems with someone that she absolutely loves and would have an amazing time with. And it's an incredibly tempting offer, but she's just like, no, I can't. I can't be rescued. that That's not the, you know... Usually in films, like kind of at the point where you're rescued by a man, that's the end of your yes. problems and the end of your story. But of course, it's not because as soon as that film ends, you've then got the rest of your life sitting there going oh I had to run away from it I was rescued I had no power I've had my problems solved for me by someone else and then you are the problem with being rescued is you are then at the mercy of that person to maintain that rescuement for the rest of your life
1: and no one can not no. any human can sustain that no no
0: and that's and it's a really important you know it's a really important thing in male female relationships like kind of even with the best one in the world done for the loveliest reasons like when a man says that he will rescue you and i totally understand why a lovely man would say you know i want to rescue you but we they need to you know we need to have a conversation where we go I can't be rescued. You need to back me up and be an ally. Like kind of you need to, you need to help me sit down and come up with a plan for how I can rescue myself because otherwise I am always, in my happiness is always at your mercy. If we break up or if we change or if you become exhausted or something else happens to you, I'm plunged back into my problems again. Like you can't rescue women. You just have to give them the power to be able to rescue themselves. It's, it's really important, again, I don't see these storylines anywhere, basically my working method is to make a list of all the things that I don't see in books huh. and in stories and in films and then that's what I write columns about or write, you know, movies about or write TV shows about or write books about because it's like the untold stories, new ideas for, for, for solving these problems is the stuff that I'm interested in. If I find myself doing a beat that I would see in something else, I'm like, well, that's not useful. That's been covered. I need to find something else.
1: You also talk about the secret um, messages that Are in books or could be in books. Yes. Thinking of Charlotte Bronte. I mean, they are so sexy, those books. Oh, God. God, I loved reading them at school, you know. Yes. And then Oscar Wilde, like all the kind of homosexual undertones and all the things that people are trying to scream out in their books that they couldn't talk about before.
0: Yes, like I had this massive, I read um, the complete works of Oscar Wilde Back to Back with Moby Dick by Herman Melville and I'd always been put off reading Herman Melville because I always thought that it was like a kind of Hemingway-esque kind of blustering kind of, basically just thought it was a big fishing book and I was just kind of (laughs) absolutely no interest in a load of men trying to catch a big fish and then I read it and realised it's just like the gayest, maddest, most psychedelic book you could possibly dream of. It just starts off with him kind of like in love with this this quick week who comes from another country and is covered in tattoos and they're sharing a bed together he obviously loves him and desires him and kind of basically writes about how he loves him and desires him but in a slightly codified way so he could not be caught out at the time and then the rest of the book is him you know, it's a pre-internet era and he's obviously a really clever man, Herman Melville, and he was a a failed writer. He died in poverty. His sort of books didn't really get any acclaim and everything that he puts into Moby Dick is he puts his entire... It's almost like he's downloaded his entire brain and heart into this book going, here is everything I know. Here's everything I know about whales and stars and physics and love and and how to cook and and the things that I've seen in the most beautiful smells in the world because... He, he has some sense that in the future other gay men will read this book and his soul will be... I mean, God, I cried when I was writing this piece, but his soul will be... He will live on. These words and the essence of his soul and his brain will live on in this book. And even though he will not be able to experience a life as a free, happy gay man that that his essence has been downloaded into this book and will be kept safe for the ages and the same thing when you're reading Oscar Wilde like kind of you know he's writing about love and he's writing about passion you know that this is what ended up putting him in prison and then killed him but he's still downloaded his essence all the love that he had all the passion that he had into these books so he's downloaded on these books and we keep him he's safe in the book even though his body dies his brain and his heart is in these books and when you start seeing sort of works of art like that all these sort of like people who are stuck in different centuries that are going to kill yeah. them but we can read them now, safe in a future where they would have been able to live and thrive. It's absolutely heartbreaking. They are like messages in a bottle that travel across the centuries, that kind of messages from these writers who are utterly alone, hoping that one day this book will be picked up by, you know, a gay man of the same age who will read it in a free world and go, I recognise you, I see you, you live on, I love you. You know, I send you all my love back through these centuries. Um, I cried my the heart out when I was writing that book because I just felt felt, felt the loneliness of these writers so much and how brave they had been and how awful it must have been to have written and to have had you know, to have been punished for it or to have not been recognised for it, you know, I have been very lucky, you know, I get to, you know, my my book is, my my stuff is read and is is loved and that's an incredible feeling I don't know if I would carry on if I was writing into a vacuum or if what I was doing would put me in jail, Um, you know, I I admire their bravery so much (laughs)
1: If a girl picks up this book in 100 or 200 years what would be the secret message oh, God well I mean I would hope that she would I, read it going kind of I feel of... like the messages are in there I mean it's it's I fe- I mean the messages didn't feel secret to me they just no. felt no I can't brilliant. keep secrets
0: no as all my friends know I can't keep secrets <laughs> they're just kind of like if I have some very secret information don't tell Caitlin she will <laughs> she's a gossip um well I kind of I mean you know my my greatest hope is that in some way some of the stuff it just even once with one girl helps to make girls of the future that I've done in the way that I related to art and particularly books when I was growing up because I was home educated I didn't go to school we didn't have any friends no one was allowed in or out the house it was a bit like Waco but without the religion they were just kind of paranoid hippies all the information that I got was from books and that's that's why the first book is called How to Build a Girl I made myself like a cargo cult from what I read and from what I saw that inspired me and I'm just hoping that these books go out to other girls who are similarly wondering what they should make themselves out of and they can take some of the things that i've written and bolt it onto themselves or you know that wires a new synapse in their head and they go oh that's a way i could be this is a thing i can think this is a route out this is a way to deal with this situation if this happened i would know what to do um and, uh, you know, and I always try and write about things that have not been written about yet so that, you know, the girls who need that stuff, hopefully, you know, my, my favorite thing when um, How To Be A Woman came out, it was banned in several countries because we were talking about masturbation and abortion. And I know that in the Middle East, in Qatar and, uh, oh, God, what's the that begins with be Bahrain, Um there were women who would smuggle the book into the country and they would they would have reading parties and read it out loud to each other and just that smuggling of knowledge, you know, yes. we're so lucky in the West we forget that, you know, we mm-hmm. can have access to almost any thought or any idea. But there are so many countries where that's still not the case and that that was one of the stories that gladdened my heart the most, that these, you know, the knowledges were being smuggled in and they were spreading it as much as they could. Uh, a friend of mine has got this phrase called your feminist glasses. So you, as you're growing up, you're probably not aware of feminism or injustice or inequality. You just accept the world the way it is, and then they become comes a point whether you read a book or you listen to an album or sort of you start hearing about feminism and it's like you put these glasses on and suddenly the world comes into focus and you go oh shit there's so much bullshit there's so much awful stuff being said and done to women where our lives are curtailed in so many ways there's so much stuff that we've internalized that i'm now only just seeing and then you go it burns it burns and you take the glasses off and you sort of go oh i'm gonna run away from feminism for a bit but you keep coming back to the glasses and putting them on more and more often until it becomes your default to see the world through... Because feminism is about a set of tools, not a set of rules. Mm. It's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, if you're a feminist, you can't wear those shoes. If you're a feminist, you can't marry that man. If, you, if you're a feminist, you can't do that job. Do whatever you want as a feminist, because feminism is about tools to understand why there is inequality and that's the beautiful thing about the word feminism being used everywhere we pick up those tools more and more often now in our everyday discourse things get questioned there are millions of people now who have been raised over the last 10 years to look at something and attack it from a feminist point of view and to be able to understand it and, and, and communicate with the ideas of feminism in mind just simple things like the Bechdale test like kind of you know that whole thing if you're watching a movie is there more than one woman in it and does she get to say anything other than talking about the male lead and the fact that that's been so enshrined in, in popular culture now that when a movie comes out you You know, they they are having to put more and more women into films because it just looks embarrassing now. We've had that conversation so many times that you can't get away with it.
1: Well, and to that point, I feel like your whole book is about respecting the female audience. Yes. And realising that at a certain level of fame, if you cross over and then become very popular with teenage girls... That somehow their fandom is second class yes, to the kind they're of, silly screaming girls. Yeah,
0: yeah. So there's a big rant in this. So the so the, the the rock star that Johanna loves, he's been in a kind of sort of he's been a credible singer songwriter and stuff, and then he has a big breakout album that crosses over and suddenly has teenage fans. And this happened to a, a friend of mine, and so the reviews suddenly started sneeringly noticing that kind of like the gigs had loads of screaming teenage girls down the front, um, and that kind of he was being mobbed by teenage girls, and it was absolutely presumed by the older male critics. That this then made his songs lesser and so often when artists are being written about in that way they then rebel against their teenage fans you know they, they they sneer about their teenage fans their teenage girl fans and then they often deliberately write an album that's kind of sort of like really wiggy and experimental to try and get rid of the teenage oh, yeah. fans you see this over and over they again do. you can do a list of these albums like, go to the woods exactly yeah they either get some ukuleles out or they yes. do some kind of mad horrible experimental electronic album and and i so i've written this big sort of speech in there about how astonishing and magic the love of teenage girls is like first of all don't shit on love. Anyone who ever loves you, why would you shit on that? And secondly, the idea that, like, the greatest band in the world, and you can't argue about this because it's a scientific fact, is the Beatles. And the Beatles would not have been the Beatles if they had not had... That, that energy and love of millions of teenage girls across the world. They were the first ones who cottoned onto to them. That their, the power of their screaming is like an electricity that you can wire yourself into. It gives you the power to do anything when you've got that many millions of girls who love you. And the Beatles accepted that. They were fueled on that. The Beatles were kind of, they were the most female band who'd ever come along. They grew their hair long like girls. They wear pointy, uncomfortable, high-heeled shoes like girls. They went on and married the kind of women you're not supposed to marry. You know, Paul marries a single mother from America. John Mary's Yoko, owner, an experimental single mother from Japan, an experimental artist, like kind of, you know, they were they were gir- they were they, they, they were proto-feminists. They were trying to be girls. The band, the first band they wanted to meet when they went to America for the first time, yeah, you know, they didn't want to meet Dylan. They didn't want to meet Elvis. They wanted to meet all the the black girl groups, like kind of that's who they wanted to hang out with. They wanted to meet Ronnie Spector. You know, they respected not only girls but women of color. They were tapped into a female culture, in a way that other bands weren't. So you 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 know, they saw the parent teenage girls and the fact that there's still so many kind of Male rockers now, who if they saw some teenage girls down the front, it would be a bit, ooh, ooh. I hope some more sort of like older, thoughtful men come down the front. Why do you want older, thoughtful men down the front of your gig? They're just going to nod their head, like uh, screaming girls down the front. You're going to you're going to play your fucking balls off if you've got screaming girls down the front. Yeah, you describe it so beautifully. Those girls aren't just screaming at the Beatles; they're screaming at themselves. They are screaming, it's like 1965. They're dressed like their mothers at that point. We still haven't really invented a counterculture. And they're going into a room that's full of other girls who all look exactly like them, and they are becoming hysterical on their power. They're screaming at each other. They're screaming with freedom that nothing can stop them at that point. You know, if they wanted to rust the stage, that's it, game over. It doesn't matter how many cops you've got down the front. And those girls know that. You know, there's such a power in standing there and screaming with girls like you, you know, whilst listening to some amazing music. That is, you know, I I believe in the power of the scream. It's a huge thing.
1: Well, after reading that, it just made me feel that this moment we're in is that moment and has the potential to be that moment. Yes. When we're reading stories and we're sharing stories and we're boosting each other up and hearing each other's anger and then laughing with them. That was what I think made me cry so much. You know, it was just so important and you were able to bring all that energy and put it in words and yet then you know, cast mean to that space and wanting to create that space for other young girls and other women
0: oh thank you it's, it's really key that you you say space because I think that's the other really important thing that culture does is it, it's not just about you saying what you think you know you're kind of I don't I guess there are two ways of if you've got any kind of public platform or any kind of public voice of seeing yourself and it's just about where you are physically you either see yourself as on a stage preaching to an audience that are watching you and there are loads of writers and you know singers and communicators and stuff who do that and that's fine But I always like to think that what I've done is I'm down in the mosh pit and I've cleared a space where other girls can come and dance. You know, I want to be in the audience making a space, you know, making sure that no one's touching them inappropriately, encouraging them to scream. Like kind of like it's, you know, the best thing I think you can do in a culture, particularly for, you know, a minority audience that is not represented, which sadly women still are, is create a space where they feel comfortable. Go, this is the new normal. The thing I loved about Lady Gaga when she went on tour, the first Fame Monster tour, is in that stadium that night that was what was normal and who was turning up were like kind of goth girls with coke cans in their hair gay boys with all their friends kind of huge big bear monsters uh you know people from all spectrums of the trans community like the people who would normally be seen as freaks and she said you know outside these walls you would be seen as freaks here you are normal and they are the freaks and i was like oh that's why i love you gaga like kind of this this room today tonight this is normal now and that's if you can create a space for people where they feel they could do something i Think that's the most important thing you can do if you've been given some space i want to share my space with others
1: well I'm looking at the time and I know we have to stop. <laughs> I just thank you for having me in your space. Oh god, it's been
0: an absolute it's pleasure. Thank you place. so much. This is the first interview that I've done about the book and it's just been so oh, lovely hearing heaven. you pick these things out. Heaven. It's just like, oh my god, it worked. That was what I wanted to
1: say and you got it. Hurrah. It's <laughs> like all those hot spots. Mm. I mean, and we, there's I have all these notes and we haven't there are so many other parts, but Yeah, talk a lot Solz. It's so good. I haven't, I was telling a friend who I saw yesterday who's in the book world. She goes, you know, what have you loved? And I said, I haven't loved anything in a long time. You know, with your heart, you know, like there are so many clever books. Yeah, yeah. But then there are some that are both clever and get you in the heart and... You know, you want to shout about them and share them. So, this is one of those. So they're really precious. That gives me thank Thank you you for coming here. Thank you. My (laughs) pleasure. Yes. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did being there with Catelyn. The main thing that I took away from this was how aptly she describes positions where you feel like you don't have power over the narrative of your story that there is a way to take that back. I'm sure you all got so many different things out of it let me know at lit up on Instagram and Twitter